VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Is your child asking questions on their homework that you don't feel equipped to answer? Is your child just struggling with a specific subject or need help with their homework? If you're dealing with any of these issues, you could maybe benefit from IXL. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way with positive feedback. Backed by research, kids using IXL are scoring higher on tests. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. And it's so cost effective. A single hour of tutoring costs more than a month of IXL. I could have totally used IXL when I was in grade school. I was always having trouble with my homework. Ugh, I wish I had this when I was a kid. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And How To Be Fine listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com slash fine. Visit IXL.com slash fine to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. IXL.com slash fine. Hello, and welcome to How to Be Fine. I'm Jolanta Greenberg. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. In each episode of How to Be Fine, we weigh in on what's happening in the world of happiness, health, and betterment, and we offer a bit of advice for those who want it. Now, full disclosure, we are not psychologists or psychiatrists or doctors or pharmacists, but we are experienced self-help critics. We have lived by the rules of almost 100 self-help books for our other podcast, By the Book, which is in this feed if you just want to scroll back. So needless to say, we've tried on almost every kind of wellness trend there is out there. And besides, we're not here promising to make you the most optimal, richest, happiest versions of yourselves. If all goes well, we'll just help you feel a little closer to fine. All right, Kristen, we have some great advice letters to get to, as we always do. But first, we need to kick things off with our hot topic. Can you tell us about it? Oh, yes, I can. Today's hot topic is seasonal affective disorder. Aw, sad. (laughs) It's the most wonderful, sad time of the year. (laughs) Yes, sadly, it is. Sadly, so we're saying sad because sad is actually the literal abbreviation for what seasonal affective disorder is. And we are going to use the term sad going forward for most of the rest of this, just so it's fewer syllables to say, right? Yeah. Fewer words to stumble over. Now, according to the National Library of Science, sad, if you 
are not familiar with it, is a mental health condition that's triggered by the changing of the seasons. People with seasonal affective disorder have signs and symptoms of either major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder, but only during certain months of the year. Now, before I go any further with this, I want to remind our listeners that we are not here to diagnose or treat any of you. So keep that in mind. That's something only your doctor can do. Jolenta and I, we cannot do that. No. As Jolenta already said, we're not doctors. And my only goal today is to just give an explainer, laying out seven facts, some of which may not be common knowledge about seasonal affective disorder. Just kind of an FYI session. That's what this hot topic is going to be. Nice. I like it. I don't know much about it other than what I've seen on TV. So I'm glad you're here to inform me. And a reminder to our listeners, all the sources for this episode are in our episode description, so you can check them all out there. All right. Let's start off with fact one. Fact one is seasonal affective disorder isn't just a winter thing. If you're like most people with SAD, your symptoms do start in the fall and continue into the winter months. But for 10% of SAD sufferers, it can instead cause depression in the spring or early summer, actually. That means whether you're in the northern hemisphere, like you and I, Jolenta, or in the southern hemisphere, like my in-laws, you could be experiencing SAD at this exact moment. It does not matter what time of year it is. It could be happening. That being said, the symptoms of SAD tend to be different depending on whether you have winter or summer SAD. So for winter SAD sufferers, the symptoms tend to be an increase in sleep, difficulty waking up, difficulty concentrating, decreased motivation, decreased energy, increased appetite, and trigger warning, frequent thoughts of suicide. For summer SAD sufferers, the symptoms tend to be insomnia, agitation, aggression, anxiety, decreased appetite, manic episodes, violence, and again, frequent thoughts of suicide. Oh, wow. So yeah, this is a very real mental health condition, like regardless of the season. And just a side note, if you're in the U.S., the National Suicide Prevention Hotline number is 988. Yes, just those three numbers, kind of like yep. 911, but 988. Exactly. So let's move on to the second sad fact. Kristen, what is it? All right. So fact number two is there's no consensus on what actually causes seasonal affective disorder. There are several theories, but none of them are really fully agreed upon. Most, however, relate to the circadian clock, a.k.a. that's our daily rhythm clock, which normally matches the night-to-day cycle. One theory is that people with winter SAD have eyes that are less sensitive to light. So once light levels fall below a certain threshold, they struggle to synchronize their circadian clock with the outside world. Whoa. There's been more and more science over the years about how our eyes play into things like with our brains, right? So right. that is part of that theory. Another theory is that people with winter SAD produce an excess of melatonin in the winter. That's the hormone that's linked to sleepiness and darkness. Some people with insomnia take melatonin pills, right, so yeah. you may be familiar with the term melatonin, which it makes sense that some people might make more melatonin because winter is so dark. Yeah, like your body's confused and it's like, it's nighttime, time for like melatonin. Yes, exactly. But it might be at 3 p.m. or something. Yeah, 
And on the flip side, there's a theory that people with summer sad produce an excess of serotonin, not Mm. melatonin, serotonin. And that hormone is linked to happiness, libido, hunger, and sunlight. And again, that makes sense because there are so many more daylight hours in the summer. Also, though, aside from those theories, are studies that suggest there's a genetic component to SAD. And those are just a few of the many, many theories. If I if I gave all the theories, we'd be here for about 30 more hours. So Whoa. those are just a few of them. Yeah. So it sounds like there is research definitely being done, but like more needs to happen in order to like really figure out a root cause. Exactly. Exactly. And that like possibly it could be more than one factor at play that creates these like seasonal flows of depression. Yes. And that gets us to fact number three. Fact number three is that seasonal affective disorder occurs more in some populations than in others. So in the U.S. alone, it's estimated that 10 million people have SAD but it's not an equal opportunity disorder. According to the National Institutes of Health, SAD occurs in up to 3% of individuals in the general population, 10 to 20% of people with major depressive disorder, and approximately 25% of people who've already been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Additionally, SAD is about four times more likely to occur in women than in men. Mm. And one theory for why is the hormonal component I mentioned in fact number two. Remember when I was talking about serotonin and melatonin and all right, those things? Right. the tonins. So you get that tied up with estrogen on top of that. Mm. So yeah, that's a lot of hormone stuff happening, right? I see. On top of that, there's the geographic component. In the U.S., only 1% of Floridians suffer from winter sad compared to 9% of Alaskans. In other words, those closer to the equator tend to have lower incidence of winter sad, but that is not always the case. This is really fascinating here, what I'm about to say. I find it fascinating, Uh at least. In Iceland, the occurrence of winter sad is only 3.8% according to the Archives of General Psychiatry, which is lower than many countries further south. And among Canadians of Icelandic descent living in the Canadian province of Manitoba, the prevalence of winter sad is approximately half that of non-Icelandic Canadians in the same province. So is that something that is part of an Icelandic person's genetic line? Maybe. Yeah. Because I was going to posit, like, obviously, further north, it's darker. If it has to do with what your eyes are taking in, the amount of Mm -hmm. light, maybe. But then here comes Iceland throwing a wrench in my theory. Yeah, yeah. There is also research being done on whether or not Africans versus African-Americans experience winter sad differently, as well as studies being done on Asian populations in their study of summer sad. Because an African person versus an African-American, how much will genetic lines play a role in that? How much Mm. will society and culture that we're each brought up in? Yeah, environmental things. Yeah, and then with Asians, likewise, all of that. Plus, you know, factoring in, once again, closeness to the equator and so on. So I'm going to be really curious to see what those studies say as they do more and more research in those areas. That is so interesting. And it could just be like something you're born with. Like if you have, you know, Icelandic heritage, you're probably not going to get it. Yes. Very unlikely. Possibility, just not as likely as the rest of us. 
And this gets us to fact four. It looks like there may be cultural and environmental components to seasonal affective disorder. I was wondering about that because I would say, yes. like, I definitely got depressed in the fall because school started. But like, also, <laughs> it was darker. Yes, yes. That's a small scale example. No, but it's it's totally valid. It's about what else is going on. How does your society treat different seasons? Right. What's happening during different seasons? So case in point. An investigative piece for The Atlantic by Linda Geddes, which I highly recommend everybody read. We'll have a link in the show notes. It looked at one of the world's most northerly cities, Tromso, Norway, which is 250 miles north of the Arctic Circle. That is how north it is. And in Tromso, the sun doesn't even rise above the horizon between November 21st and January 21st. Wow. But most of the locals embrace it. For example... Geddes talked with Anne-Marie Hecton, who grew up in southern Norway. So she grew up with a lot more sun. She had sun year-round. Got it. And she said, at first, the darkness was very depressing when I moved to Tromso. I needed to get a light box. But over time, I changed my attitude to the dark period. People living here see it as a cozy time. In the south, the winter is something you have to plow through. But up here, people appreciate the very different kind of light you get at this time of year. It's treated as its own special, Jolenta, we talked about hygge back in the Bible days. It's its own kind of like hygge period of the year, like cozy up, cuddle, get under a blanket. It's the cozy down season. Yeah, it's it's something very special about hunkering down and you don't have to work so hard right now. Just relax a little bit, you know? And Stanford University psychologist Carrie Leibovitz backed this up with her own research. From 2014 to 2015, she spent almost an entire year in Tromso, 10 months up there. Mm -hmm. And while there, she devised a winter mindset questionnaire to assess people's attitudes to winter in Tromso. And two other areas, the Svalbard Archipelago and the Oslo area. So these are different parts of Scandinavia. Got it. And the further north she went the more positive people's mindsets toward winter were in a cultural sense. And her conclusion was liking winter was associated with greater life satisfaction and a greater willingness to undertake challenges that lead to personal growth. So there's also, you know, something we've talked about before, Jolenta, that it can give us a surge of a happiness boost when we accomplish a goal or Mm, when we undertake a challenge. And People who have that mindset up in Tromso, like every day is, look, I took on a challenge. I shoveled my front stoop. I feel Mm -hmm. so accomplished and happy. So kind of viewing things that way rather than, oh, I have to get through this hellscape. Her research found that changed things. Yeah. So a reframing of winter or a sort of like cultural embrace of winter definitely seems to help combat sad. Yes. Yes. And that gets us to fact five. Fact five is that Sad lamps may be just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to combating sad. Iceberg. (laughs) Come on. I did that on purpose just so you could make that face. (laughs) Ay, ay, ay. So we all know about sad lamps, right? I think so. Some of you out there listening may even have one. My late mother did, and so do several of my friends. These are special light boxes that people with winter sad are prescribed to sit in front of for, you know, maybe the first hour of the morning when they wake up each day. But Dr. Kelly Rohan from the University of Vermont conducted a clinical trial a few years ago comparing cognitive behavioral therapy to light therapy in the treatment of sad. 
and actually found the two were comparable during the first year of treatment. Additionally, the Mayo Clinic, shout out to my hometown, Minnesota, recommends regular exercise, time outside, socializing, as well as prescription medications. And some researchers are even looking into vitamin D as a treatment, which is not prescription. You can just get it at the store. That makes a lot of sense. I know very few of us get enough vitamin D. I actually take a prescription strength vitamin D, Kristen, because uh, that's something I've become deficient in due to lupus. And I have to tell you, when I take my vitamin D, it gives me a burst of energy. I take it once a week, so it's like a very high dosage. And Brad and I joke about it. Like the 24 hours after I take my vitamin D, we say I'm I'm D'd up because I'm, ah. I'm all like <laughs> hyped and ready to go and I have trouble going to sleep. So like I would believe that vitamin D could be a treatment for sure. Oh, yeah. Get that big D energy. Yeah. yeah. I, I get that big D energy every day too because I have to take the supplements because like you, I don't have enough vitamin D either. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to fact six. Fact six is seasonal affective disorder is a matter of public health, not just personal well-being. In Mm. other words, if you're someone who's never had SAD and has never known anyone with SAD, that doesn't mean it's not affecting you. This is just a PSA here. It is affecting all of us. So remember how I mentioned earlier that summer SAD symptoms include aggression and violence? Well, that's something that's supported with data. Mm. An investigation published in JAMA Psychiatry found that emergency department visits were 8% higher on hot summer days compared to cooler summer days. Additionally, a study published by the National Library of Medicine found an increase in child maltreatment in the summer. And not surprisingly, a number of studies point to decreases in workplace productivity due to winter SAD. So in addition to public safety, there's also an economic outcome worth considering if that is important to you. I think both of these things are important to all of society, right? Yeah, those things matter a lot to all of us. Yeah. So SAD is basically an everyone problem, even if it doesn't seem like that on the surface. Exactly, exactly. All right, and what is your seventh and final fact about SAD for us? All right, so fact number seven, when I was doing my research, this is probably the one that surprised me the most. Mm -hmm. Seasonal affective disorder is not a newfangled idea. I was alive when SAD was first named and when the National Institute of Mental Health first treated it like a real diagnosis. That was in 1984. So in my lifetime, this happened. So I thought it was kind of a newfangled diagnosis. Yeah, same. Yeah. But it turns out it goes back way, way further. So for example, in 1806, Philippe Pinel wrote in his treatise on insanity that there was an observed mental deterioration in some of his psychiatric patients during the winter. And way back in 300 BC, way before we were alive, Jolenta, in the Yellow Emperor's Classic of Medicine, the seasonal effect on human cognition, mental health, happiness, and more was written about there. So while SAD may feel like a relatively new diagnosis to people like me, it's not actually a new condition. We're talking thousands of years ago. People were talking about this. It's an observed phenomenon that's been affecting mankind since we could observe what we do, yes. basically. Wow. Yes. I had no idea. I know, <laughs> like, my grandma said she had a sad 
in the 90s. And it, we were all like, what is this? So, yeah, I thought it was brand new, too. Yeah. So with all of that information that I just dumped on you, Jolenta, yes. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on SAD or your experiences, if you want to share those? I haven't personally been diagnosed with SAD, but growing up in Portland, Oregon, I feel like a lot of people I encountered did get diagnosed with it. And granted, this is purely anecdotal evidence based on my own experiences. But one thing I did notice is the people who got diagnosed with it, almost all of them weren't Portland natives. Mm, it's like the woman who transplanted to Trump. So, yeah. yeah. Where it's like, if you just grow up in that level of basically 11 months of darkness with like tons <laughs> of rain, you know, Portland just stays overcast for so long. Like people always jump for joy. And there's the saying in Portland of like, oh, you can see the mountain today. Because even though you can really easily see Mount Hood from Portland, Oregon, it's often pretty hard to spot because of so much cloud covering. Mm -hmm. So like it's dreary, it's dark. And I think being born there and just having to learn how to play outside when it gets dark or like when it's rainy or, you know, not caring if your shoes are wet constantly or just sort of embracing like, yeah, it's maybe the season where my feet are freezing, but I also wear flip flops when I have to like walk out to my car because like they're the easiest things to get wet. You know, all these weird little concessions that you grow up making are hard to adjust to and hard to sort of embrace, I think, when you've also known it could be brighter in a weird <laughs> way. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't know better. So, like, I thought this was it. Like, summer was, like, three weeks of sun and you enjoyed it, <laughs> but you also may do with the rest. <laughs> I love that. I just didn't know any better. <laughs> right, right. So I feel like, you know, being from a place that is normally dark makes the reframing sort of easy slash the only thing you know how to do. Very good point. All right. And what about you, Kristen? How do you feel about SAD after doing all this research? You know, doing all this research made me think I want to be more like the people in Tromso, mm -hmm. you know, in the Arctic Circle living up there in northern, northern Norway. I think I want to be somebody who works harder to embrace the seasons. Because even though I have never been diagnosed with SAD, I am somebody who can get a little bummed out when it seems right. like it's dark all day in the wintertime. You know, that can be a bummer for me. Leaving my little home studio after you and I record and walking into the living room and seeing it's pitch black outside when it was <laughs> like, you know, when it's like it's four in the afternoon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where I'm like, oh God, this is so sad. But I do think that being more mindful of what can be good about the dark seasons and what can be good about the super hot days too. I think that would just be good for me overall, even without the sad diagnosis. And I think that might be the case for lots of us. And, you know, maybe it's okay to, in the wintertime, embrace the fact that I'm not doing as much. I don't have to worry about like, right. go, go, go. Maybe it is a time to just enjoy cozying up. And maybe I can appreciate different things about that that maybe I didn't deliberately try to appreciate before, but instead just tried to survive. Like the Minnesotan right. I am. It's like, I'm going to survive this. We can do it. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe I can embrace it a little bit more. Yeah. 
All right, listeners, we want to hear from you, too. Do you suffer from seasonal affective disorder to someone you know? How do you cope with it? Do you have any tips, tricks, advice, kind words? Share your thoughts and stories with us at kristenandjalenta at gmail.com. And you can always weigh in on our Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash kristenandjalenta. Coming up. A letter writer wants to know how to be a more courteous upstairs neighbor. Stay with us. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everyone. We're back with our first listener letter of the day. Jolenta, what do they have to say? All right. Our letter writer says, Dear Kristen and Jolenta, my family of five moved into a house that is on the top two and a half floors above two other apartments in a fussy old Victorian building. Two of the children are nearly six feet tall. Both parents are large and we all have huge feet. Most of us are very seriously allergic to dust mites, so rugs are not an option. Also, due to allergies, there's a lot of laundry being washed. Although we are sticking to the request of doing it between 10 a.m. and 10 p.m., it's been two weeks and we're almost finished moving in, but there's a lot of shuffling things around and furniture assembly and catching up on three weeks of laundry. So it's a lot. The neighbor below thinks we've been making too much noise for too long and doesn't think we'll get quieter and is just freaking the fuck out. The landlord emailed me with his concerns and I have replied with explanations. This is really upsetting because I am trying to not make too much noise, but I'm also moving in. And while there will eventually be less laundry, it will never be the zero to two loads per day the downstairs neighbor prefers. I'm going to have a complete nervous breakdown. What should I do? Mm. Well, first of all, letter writer, I can say probably, Jolenta, you feel this way too. Moving in and of itself is just so stressful. I have moved so many times in my life. 
moving can be very, very stressful. And learning how to set up home in a new location can be stressful. Dealing with new neighbors can be stressful. So this is a lot of stress all at once. And I am sorry you're dealing with this. But I also think this speaks to what a good person you are, that you really want to find a way to work with your downstairs neighbor. You want to be a better neighbor. You know you're pissing off the downstairs neighbor right now. You don't want to do this forever. You're just trying to do your best. And we see the good in your heart right here in this letter. We see that you're trying to do better. And I think we both have a device of how you can do better in this situation. We both, by the way, have downstairs neighbors because we also live in apartment buildings. Yep, it's true. And I am a downstairs neighbor. So am I, yes. I'm on the fourth floor of a walk-up building, and on the fifth floor is another neighbor above us. So, yeah. Nice. I would say, first of all, like Kristen said, you sound nice and really considerate. Because I know there are some people who would not give a fuck if their neighbors were upset or like if their neighbors were impatient about the moving process and they'd fire off some email being like, I'm still moving. Duh, there's going to be noise. Bye. <laughs> like that would be the response back to the landlord. So the fact that you are being considerate is so nice. I have a few suggestions when it comes to neighbor relations. Like people always like a gift in these situations. Mm, you know, do. I know yes. it's annoying because like, why should you have to buy a fucking gift if you're the one moving and going through all the stress? But if you want to pave things over a little gift of some food along with like, thanks for hanging in there while we still move stuff in only another like week till we're settled. Like, you know, with a little, a little reminder that like, it's still a process and it takes a minute, especially if you're a family. So like maybe a little gift with a cookie or some alcohol, or if you want to be a little tongue in cheek, you can get them a gift of like a noise machine or uh, Ah, earplugs and be like, thanks for bearing with us. Or maybe some alcohol with a white noise machine and earplugs, you know, like a little moving in survival kit. People make those when they travel with babies sometimes, too, about like, thanks in advance for being patient while my toddler sits behind you on their first flight. You know, (laughs) people like these sort of acknowledgments of like, yeah, I might be annoying and I might be loud for a minute, but uh, I appreciate your patience. People love those gestures in these situations. They tend to help. Yeah. It's harder to be mad at the person who you know is still moving and like, you know, put in some effort to like make you feel seen. Yeah. Especially if you're seeing each other face to face too. It's like, oh, you're not just this noise above my head anymore. You're actually a human being. You go like maybe knock on the door, drop it off, say hey. Yeah. I think that's great advice, Jolanta. Thank you. My other bit of advice is for the rug situation. I feel you. Rugs can get super dusty. And if you have a bad allergy to that, you don't want them. They're just like a home for dust mites to breed in and go to town in. Like, I feel you. One thing I have kind of liked as an impromptu floor covering are, this is going to sound silly, but hear me out. They make really cute, you know, those like sort of foamy puzzle piece tiles that you, I was that you put on the ground for babies. But they make really cute ones that like have the pattern of a traditional rug or like a yes. hipster rug on it. Like they have all sorts of really cool ones and they really help with soundproofing. 
They really help with mess cleanup. I have seen some really, really good ones that interlock and just look like a floor covering. And also you could have a lot of fun with it because you can get a few different sets and maybe move them from room to room. Different rooms can have different themes. You can really easily like change out your rug or your flooring and swap it for a new pattern or put that pattern in the bedroom and this one in the living room. Like you can play with them and they make some really cute ones and they will help with the sound insulation. Yes, I second that. That was on my list of recommendations, Jolenta. Oh my gosh. I was afraid it was going to be too silly, but it was like, no. oh my gosh, this is the first thing that popped in my head. I loved my friend Rebecca's floor covering for her baby and was like, wait, I kind of just want that like in the bathroom yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. They're like a half an inch thick, sometimes an inch thick, and they're spongy. They don't collect dust mites. They're kind of rubbery. You can just wipe them down. Yeah. They're super easy to wipe down. Yeah. And they do make a difference, especially in all of your primary walkways. If you have hallways, if there are high traffic areas, definitely put those down. Here in New York, I believe the rule is you can demand that an upstairs neighbor cover their floors 80%. So if you can cover 80% of your floors with those sponges, they're delightful to walk on too. They just feel good on the feet. So they're good. They do feel good. Yeah. And speaking of feet, you and your family and your giant feet letter writer, if you're not already, please make sure you're a shoe-free household. Make sure those shoes are coming off your feet before you even walk in the door of your apartment. And then make sure that there are little slip-on slippers. I'm talking those slippers that don't have a backside, the ones that force you to walk gingerly when you Mm. are in those slippers. Those little slip-on slippers, common in a lot of households. A lot of households in Asia have them. You'll see them, just the front of your foot goes in them, but there's no backside. You have to walk in them gingerly. And that makes those huge feet not go stomp, stomp, stomp. It makes the huge feet go whisper, whisper, whisper when you're walking. shuffle, shuffle. Yes. Shuffle, shuffle. Yes. Yes. So please just have a pile of those slip-on slippers by your front door. Again, it's a very common thing in a lot of Asian households, Asian-American households. A lot of my friends, we go to their house and there's just a pile of slippers. You can just slip them on your feet. And then we make way less noise in the house. Another logistical thing, you let a writer say that you live on the top two and a half floors. You have a giant apartment. You have two and a half floors. Maybe you can set aside the floor that's directly above your neighbor to be the quiet floor. And maybe your kids, you know, kids have energy, kids jump around, kids make noise. Maybe only the top floor or the top half floor of your apartment is the noisy area. Those are the areas where the kids, if they want to play, I don't know what kids play now, Dance Dance Revolution is like 20 years too old, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah, that makes us (laughs) sound really old. If they're playing the guitar hero. If you have an Oculus where you're doing VR-like stuff or if you're doing some sort of, you know, physical activity, please make sure that those are happening on what you call your noisy floors and then make sure the floor above your neighbor is what you as a family agree is the quiet floor. If that is possible, do your best to do that. And then as far as the laundry goes, I'm not quite sure why you need to do more than two loads of laundry every day after this initial move-in period. But I trust you when you say that you can't get by doing fewer than 
three loads per day, but it might be worth using a laundry service. Jolenta, as you know, I used to always use a laundry service where I would just drop off my laundry and then once a week they would, you know, bring it back to me. And honestly, it only cost a few cents more per pound to do laundry that way than to do it myself because they're doing it like assembly line, massive amounts of laundry, and they're able to just finish it quickly and do it at a good price. So I'm not sure if that's something you would consider. I'm not sure what the laundromat situation is in the town that you live in. But if that's possible, that might be something worth doing. I'm not saying all the time, but maybe, you know, once a month you have a treat day where you just send out your laundry for the week. Maybe that's worth trying. And those are some of my logistical bits of advice. Anything else you think we missed, Jolenta? That's all I got. All right. Well, I'm guessing our listeners also have some great ideas for our letter writer. So feel free to share those with us on all of our socials, including Instagram at howtobefinepod. We're going to take another quick break. When we're back, we have a letter writer who is dealing with a scheduling issue. Stay with us. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right, we are back with our second letter of the day. Kristen, would you read this one? Yes. Our letter writer says, Dear Kristen and Jolenta, I'm hoping you two and the other listeners can help me out. I'm an engineer for a 24-7 chemical manufacturing plant. Staff hours are generally flexible as long as we work 40 hours per week. My manager has recently created a daily 10-minute meeting scheduled to start an hour before I typically arrive. That would be at 7.30 versus 8.30, so it's not like I'm slacking off until noon. I'm showing up at 8.30 for work. (sighs) I would have to change my sleep schedule and outside of work life, though, to make this new 7.30 start time work. My ideal productivity hours are late afternoon, so he'd also lose some of my best work output. Are there ways to push back on this? I'm more looking for how to resist changing to the new schedule. I know all the tips for becoming an early riser. Thank you. Ah. What a bullshit meeting time. I am sorry you have to deal with that, listener. I hate shit like that. Oh, that drives me wild. I hate that when they're like, hey, this just will be a quick little thing. And I haven't thought about the fact that it could totally inconvenience people or hijack their schedules. Ugh, I am sorry you have to deal with that. I have two suggestions. My first suggestion is money. Ask to get paid for the meeting, even though it's a small amount. Bosses hate having to pay more money and be like, great. (laughs) Do we get an additional like extra few bucks for showing up? I know that sounds petty, 
But when I worked a desk job for a theater company, it was a job that a bunch of us shared and we all worked at like wonky times because the studio had to be open so often. And we used to have to come in for a monthly meeting at 7 a.m. and we would get paid an hour to come in, even if it was just for five minutes, because they knew a lot of us would have to take time out of other jobs or our personal schedules to make that meeting. So, you know, if you let your boss know, like, this is going to take an extra hour out of my day. So do I get an extra hour's pay? That might help him rethink it. But that's a little dramatic of a step to <laughs> advise you to take first. First, I would say, just sort of act like it's nothing and just be like, so like, what's the call in number? So I can mm-hmm. like listen in while ding, I'm ding, getting ding. ready for work yes. or while I'm commuting to work, I can listen in on like speakerphone. We know how to do hybrid work. We know how to do conference calls. It's 2023. Even if it's just someone on their personal phone doing speakerphone, like if it's really just a 10 minute meeting to start the day, you should be able to call in and listen to what you need to hear because you shouldn't have to physically be there, especially if it's just like a 10 minute check in, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, wait, do my advice in the opposite order in which I gave it. First, be like, what's the call in number? <laughs> then if they're like, there isn't one, be like, cool. So you're going to pay me to come in an hour early because I still <laughs> work best when I normally come in. So like that's going to have to be, you know, compensated. <laughs> yes. So. I 100% agree with you about the call-in. One thing I would say about that is, if possible, during that call-in, be the best version of yourself you can be. Just show that when you call in, you're just as good as if you were in person. There is no reason why you have to be in there in person. Look at me. I just woke up at 725. I made a cup of coffee. Now I'm on this call with all of you. Look at me. I'm being the best version of myself I can be. The reason I say 725 to wake up don't let it ruin your life. Sleep in as late as you normally do if you can. That is the Kristen rule That is of me thumb. speaking <laughs> the truth. I'm like, if you really just are not the best version of yourself if you wake up at 6.30, try to find a way not to wake up at 6.30. Try to wake up at 7.25, you know? And then do your 7.30 to 7.40 meeting. Go about your normal getting ready for your day stuff and then get to work at 8.30 if you can. If there is a way to do that, do it. Second, maybe have a talk with your manager. I might ask your manager, does it have to be at this time? Could we bump it even by 15 minutes? Is there a way to wiggle it a little bit? And maybe your boss, I don't know what your boss is like, but some bosses are receptive to tiny changes like that. If it's only a 15-minute difference or if it's only a 20-minute difference, let's say it's 7.50 to 8, you know, some bosses are going to be able to make that work. But I'd say also be prepared for the fact that maybe your manager chose this time because you work at a 24-7 company. And for those working the overnight shift, this is the only thing that's going to work for them. Those people who are working the terrible graveyard shift, who really just, they always have the worst situation. And maybe this was your manager's way of trying to set up a meeting time that works best for those overnight people because they usually don't get considered when scheduling is happening. Those overnight people, I can say as somebody who's done a few overnight shifts in my life, those people are frequently just like, (laughs) nobody cares about them. No one's trying to accommodate them. And maybe this was your manager's way of saying, this is a tiny concession we can make for them. 
So, you know, it might be worth a conversation with your manager, and that may be the answer in the end is, sorry, but we do have to also do something nice for these overnighters. I'm not sure. But conversations, they never hurt, especially when they're approached politely and not just with demands, but, you know, maybe with a more curious spirit rather than a demanding spirit. So you don't recommend demanding money, like I said. <laughs> that's a tool. It's a negotiation tactic. It's not the end of Yes, all. that's not a demand. That's a negotiation tactic. Exactly, Jolenta. So, you know, that's a variety of advice from me and Jolenta. Hopefully, one of those things will work for you. We're not going to try to make you an early riser. I am not mm-hmm. an early riser. I'm never going to be an early riser. But yeah, maybe doing meetings by phone, maybe getting paid more, or maybe having a conversation with your boss, or maybe if it comes down to it, having some empathy for those overnighters who have to be in the meeting too. Maybe a combination of these things will help you. And that's it for this episode of How to Be Fine. Huge thank you to our executive producer, Nora Ritchie, our producer, Chantal Holder, and our composer slash engineer, Casey Holford. Reminder, we have a Patreon. And for a modest monthly donation, you can get more of me and Joenta. Every Tuesday, we release a special Patreon mini-sode in which we talk about the books we're reading right now. Everything from celebrity memoirs to self-help books to the latest bestsellers. In a recent episode, I talk all about Jill Duggar Dillard's memoir, Counting the Cost. That's right. So if you want to get that, go to patreon.com slash listen to buy the book. That's right. It's still listen to buy the book. Patreon.com slash listen to buy the book. And if you haven't done this already, why don't you rate us and review us wherever you're listening? Let us know what you think of the show. It helps people find the show. And who doesn't want to find a, a fun show? Until next time, I'm Kristen Meinzer. And I am Jalenta Greenberg. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. See you next week. Until then, stay fine. Stitcher. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.